This is us. Dear friend, the heartbeat of any small town is its people. They create its identity. And anyone who's lived in one can tell you that the best and worst thing about small towns is that everybody knows you. For better or worse, everyone knows your business. They know what you're up to, who you're friends with, what your family does for a living, what kind of student or athlete you are, and ultimately what kind of person they think you are. Living in a small town comes with its fair share of prize versus punishment. If you spent some time in a small town, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, in my humble opinion, the best thing about small towns is actually this. When it really counts, people tend to have each other's back. If tragedy strikes or someone in the community is in desperate need of support, the people of any great small town will rise to the occasion like you can only imagine. It's truly a beautiful thing to witness. But naturally, no small town is perfect. On any given day, some of a small town's worst personality traits can rear their ugly heads. A small town can at times feel restrictive, judgmental, overly political, and even suffocating. This is especially true for those in the community with a bad reputation or a checkered past. Reputation is everything in a small town. It can be the difference between success and failure, approval versus condemnation. Typically, once a reputation is assigned, it sticks. It can be a difficult thing to break and then replace. For a family, reputation becomes legacy. And perception becomes reality. Our small town of Jefferson was no different. Fortunately, our family was assigned a pretty positive reputation in those early years. I think everyone knew mom and dad were good people. They were kind, polite, church-going folk. It was obvious they loved Johnny and I more than anything. Love has a way of shining a bright light on a truth like that. We didn't have much money to our name, but our family sure did have a lot of love and support for one another. Dad worked day and night as an electronic technician to provide for the family. Every decision he made was predicated on what was best for Johnny and I. His dream was simple. He wanted his boys to have the opportunity to follow and achieve their own dreams, to have a better life than the one he'd been given. He would do everything he possibly could to make that happen. Mom would give everything she had, too. She was not able to work because she had epilepsy. Sometimes her seizures were so bad that Dad would have to take time off of work, or a friend from church would come to help out. Ultimately, though, Mom was the caretaker and spiritual leader of our household. She made sure Johnny and I went to church, tried our best in school, and were able to make it to all of our baseball games and practices. She was our biggest fan, and the loudest, too. Every time we got a hit or made a play, you would hear our dear mother yelling at the top of her lungs, That's my boy! I can still hear the pride and excitement in her voice. Dad had a more soft-spoken approach, but we always knew he was proud of us, too. Together, Johnny and I were admired for the close bond we shared as brothers and for the respect we showed our parents. Apart, I was seen as a nice, smart kid with a bright future. People seemed to like me. I'd go up to just about anyone and start talking their ear off, especially adults. 
I imagine mom and dad weren't always thrilled about that last detail, as I found myself nearly wandering off with complete strangers at times. Once I befriended them, I figured they weren't strangers to me anymore. Fortunately, I got along with the other kids, too. But it wasn't until I started playing baseball that I felt I had much in common with them. For some reason, I always found it easier to talk to adults. At church and dinner parties, I loved sitting at the grown-ups table. Listening in on their conversations, I was fascinated by what I might learn. And I certainly didn't mind impressing them with good manners or some advanced kid knowledge of my own. If I could add something to the conversation or get a laugh out of them, I considered it an accomplishment. I must admit I didn't mind being the center of attention back then. I guess you could say it made me feel good about myself. Somehow, it made me feel important. Johnny was perceived to be a tough, hard-working kid who spoke politely to adults and tried his best to get along with the other kids in the community as well. This was, of course, once he became a better baseball player. You may remember that before his magical moment, he was practically invisible in Jefferson. The only attention he did get was primarily negative. Johnny was all too often laughed at, teased, and sometimes even pitied those first few years. It was as if he had little to no worth until he overcame his struggles on the baseball field. This, too, became another reason for Johnny's obsession with the game he loved, I'm sure. He knew what was going on. Kids are much smarter than we often give them credit for. So, it also caused Johnny to become quite shy and withdrawn when we first moved to Jefferson. And unfortunately, it was something he struggled with for a while. Unlike me, it was difficult for him to open up to people at first. I remember feeling bad for him at times because he really had a hard time with that. Now I feel bad that I never really did anything about it. As fate would have it, though, Johnny and I would both see our personalities blossom right alongside our budding baseball abilities. Every win, and especially every made all-star team, gained us more and more notoriety and gave us both a healthy dose of confidence. With confidence came courage. Before long, Johnny and I weren't afraid of anything, on or off the baseball field. We began to see the sky is the limit and our small town of Jefferson as our launching pad. But before we were to move on to bigger and better things, Johnny and I wanted to make the most of our time in our humble little hometown. We grew to love Jefferson's personality, and we were both beginning to really love its people. And the people would love us right back. So making friends, and eventually meeting girls, became easy for us. Our good reputation seemed intact. When we met our first official friends, two brothers who happened to be the same age as us, life in our small town of Jefferson was about as perfect as it could be. These brothers, the Larson boys, also liked to play baseball, and they loved to have fun. They also only lived two streets away from us, so playing baseball and having fun together quickly became our M.O. We were like the boys from the sandlot. Only our baseball would be played in a small concrete cul-de-sac that sat across from Johnny and I's house. And fun would be had wherever we could find it. Sometimes baseball and fun went hand in hand. Sean, the older of the two Larson brothers, liked to compete with Johnny in just about everything. Who could hit the ball the farthest? Who could come up with the best thing to do for fun? And, of course, who could talk to the most girls? Chris, the younger of the Larson boys, just enjoyed being along for the ride. 
he liked playing baseball with us, but didn't feel the need to jockey for position or proclaim himself as king of the diamond. He did, however, love to tell jokes and found a great sense of pride in being the funniest of our young Motley crew. Like me, Chris looked up to his older brother, but he didn't mind competing with Sean when it came to finding the best thing to do for fun. Chris always seemed to have something up his sleeve. I remember one time when we lost all of the tennis balls we played our neighborhood baseball games with. Chris thought it would be a fun idea to walk over to the nearby tennis courts to steal some more. Little Ash Stadium, as we like to call it, was the only fully equipped tennis operation in town. It just so happened to be nestled up to the backside of our neighborhood. As a result, its lead instructor, Mr. Waz, as he was known, was quite used to us riffraffs stealing his tennis balls all the time. The summers were always a busy time for him. He was in charge of running camps and tournaments for kids and adults alike, so we knew he might be distracted and there would be plenty of tennis balls to be found. Mr. Waz had already asked us politely many times to find our supply of baseballs elsewhere, He had even encouraged us to come learn some tennis from him sometime. But this was the closest and cheapest place for us to stock up. And I have to admit, we kind of got a kick out of seeing if we could successfully gather up a good supply without Mr. Waz catching us. Now, on this particular day, Chris had something extra up that sleeve of his. When we arrived at the courts, we began collecting as many tennis balls as we could find around the perimeter. But just as we were set to finish... Here came Mr. Waz, and as he had done many times before, he calmly asked us to either put the balls down or throw them back over. Most of the time, this prompted us to quickly stuff the balls in our pockets and run. But this time, Chris decided to throw something back over. The problem was, he chose rocks instead of tennis balls. He began chucking any rock he could find over the large fence surrounding the courts, squarely in Mr. Waz's direction. Stunned by Chris's decision, and a loud yell from on the court, the rest of us stopped in our tracks. Then, out of nowhere, and in what seemed like world record time, Mr. Waz came barreling over the highest fence I'd ever seen in my life. When his feet hit the ground, I was even more stunned by what I saw. I screamed, Oh my god! His face is bleeding! Uh, Chris, what the hell, man? Guys, what do we do? But before I could say another word, The rest of my motley crew did what they always seem to do in these situations. They ran. And so, I ran too. I got out of there fast. I was Ricky Henderson's protege, after all. Just when I thought I was in the clear, I heard Johnny yelling for help. Guys, my shoe fell off. It's slowing me down. Crap, here he comes. Oh, man, he got me. Eli... I'm caught. Now, even though I didn't like it, I knew exactly what to do. Johnny and I had a deal for dilemmas like this. If one of us got caught, the other turned himself in too. As for Sean and Chris, they were long gone. The next thing Johnny and I knew, we were in Mr. Waz's office calling our mother to tell her what we'd done. After we received our well-deserved verbal spanking from her, Mr. Waz grabbed the phone back and began telling Mom his plan. Listen, I've offered your boys tennis lessons here before. I obviously know they can run. They've always said they didn't have the money to sign up for one of our camps here. So I'll tell you what. 
I think your boys are actually pretty good kids, and I'd love to see them do something more productive around here. If they'll offer to help out with some things at the club, they can join one of our camps free of charge. But they've got to be willing to work for it. Okay, sounds like a plan. You have a good day too, Mrs. Andrews. And just like that, a bad situation had turned into a unique opportunity. But as much as Johnny and I appreciated Mr. Waz's generosity, we didn't want his tennis camps to conflict with our busy baseball schedules. So a new deal was struck. We agreed to pay our penance and help out around the facility, and in exchange, we would receive a few tennis lessons when we were available and even be allowed to swim in the small outdoor pool attached to the bar and grill at Randolph Racquet Club. We could also use the batting cages that were operated at the facility as well. For my big brother, that was like striking gold. Johnny spent the rest of the summer cleaning and using the batting cages. He also kept his word and helped out with anything and everything Mr. Waz needed. Johnny and I actually enjoyed working there, and we really liked and respected Mr. Waz. He was one of the nicest and most generous people we ever met in Jefferson. Thanks to him, we not only learned more about the value of hard work and a few things about how to properly hit a tennis ball, we also met a lot of other great people at the racket club. Our favorite person at the club, other than Mr. Waz, of course, was a kid Johnny's age named Mason. Mason was unlike anybody we had ever known. He was like a real-life Forrest Gump. Kind and full of joy, he spoke a little slower than the other kids, but had a smile and a laugh that could warm the human heart for days. Mason loved two things, tennis and James Bond. And boy, could he tell you all about Bond, James Bond. He had a photographic memory and could recite literally every single line from any James Bond movie requested. By the end of that summer, Johnny and I found ourselves spending more and more time with Mason. He was quickly becoming one of Johnny's closest friends. He was becoming one of our family's favorite people. He would join us at Johnny's final baseball games that season, walking the length of the field several times over and reciting James Bond movies from beginning to end. I'll never forget how much fun it was to watch him perform. Mason was good for us. Actually, he was good for the whole town of Jefferson. But being that he was different and not very good at baseball, some of the other kids in town weren't always nice to him. They would snicker and laugh when he walked by. They would call him stupid and imitate his slow speech. They would make fun of him for his fascination with James Bond. Sadly, they would even tease Mason about girls and dare him to go up to female classmates and say inappropriate things. And all too often, other kids sat idly by and just watched it happen. Johnny was not one of those kids. One day, when Johnny and Mason were in 8th grade, my brother and I saw a group of boys ushering Mason into the bathroom after school. We could tell by the look on their faces and the way they were acting, they were up to no good. Johnny didn't hesitate for a second. He ran toward the bathroom in a full-out sprint. My reaction was quite different. I froze, unsure of what to do. I wanted to make sure Mason was okay too, but I just knew it wasn't going to be as simple as asking these guys to leave him alone. With trepidation, I made my way to the bathroom door. I couldn't quite bring myself to go in, though. Instead, I peeked in, unseen. Johnny was already in the process of taking care of it. 
One guy was on the ground clutching his stomach. Another came up behind Johnny and grabbed him, trapping his arms down beside his waist. Just as the third bully stepped up to take a swing, Johnny headbutted the guy behind him and then ducked under the punch. He spun around and threw the bully against the stall door. As Johnny approached him to finish him off, the bully ran out the bathroom door. He was so frantic he didn't even see me on his way out. The kid who had gotten headbutted yelled out in pain, Shit! I think he broke my nose! Blood sprayed out, some of it landing on Johnny's shirt. The guy on the ground finally began to get back up. He made it back up to his knees, looked at Johnny and said, Damn, dude! Why do you care so much? He's just a freaking retard! Ooh, Johnny exploded like thunder. He kicked the kid in the face and then jumped on top of him. At this point, I felt enough was enough. I was just about to intervene. But it was Mason, who had been crouched in a corner and terrified by what was happening, that took the bravest step of all of us that day. Mason walked up to Johnny, put his hands on his shoulder, and said, It's okay, Johnny. I'm okay. He then offered his hand to the guy on the ground and said, I'm sorry you got hurt. As he helped one of his bullies back to his feet, everyone else stood in amazement. The room grew silent until Mason spoke again. No more fighting. I think I want to go home now. Johnny put his arm around Mason, looked at the other two boys and said, This is the kindest person you'll probably ever meet. I hope you'll never tease him again. They nodded in agreement and then headed for the door. I backed away from the building and turned around. When Johnny and Mason came outside, I was there to meet them. Johnny looked confused. Where you been, Eli? I had to fight all those guys myself. Then a grin grew across his face. Thanks for nothing, little bro. I didn't know what to say. The truth was something I didn't want to admit. I had to think of something quick. Sorry, guys. Mr. Tilfer stopped me on my way in, and I had to distract him so he didn't come in there and catch you guys. Johnny seemed pleased. Nice, Eli. Always watching out for us. I felt bad for lying, but it was too late to turn back. Of course, Johnny. Always. Which is why I've got to help you get that blood out of your shirt. We don't want mom and dad to see that. And away we went. I did rub the blood out of Johnny's clothes that day. It was the only helpful deed I did. Even Mason had shown so much more courage and strength than I had. And Johnny, of course, completely went to bat for our dear friend. That's just the type of guy he was at the time. After that, Johnny's reputation was intact. Especially with girls. Word of his heroic defense of Mason quickly made its way around town and more and more people wanted to get to know this honorable young man even better. Adults and kids alike were becoming a part of his fan base. Before he knew it, Johnny had gone from a quiet, unappreciated kid to a resilient, respected baseball player to now somewhat of a living legend among many of his classmates. And when it came to girls, it didn't hurt that he was also growing into a decent-looking teenager too. Some said he looked like a young James Dean. Once again, I was proud of my big brother. It was an honor to be so closely associated with him. To know that people in Jefferson took special notice of us both, even if defending Mason wasn't a badge of honor I could personally wear. 
I have to admit, it wasn't just pride I felt, though. For the first time, perhaps, I also felt envious. I was beginning to be a little jealous of Johnny. He was squarely in the spotlight now, deservingly so, and I wasn't sure where that left me. I, too, wanted to be a hero someday. I wanted to be just like Johnny. Problem was, we were quite different. At least that's the way I saw it. Johnny was now strong, both inside and out. He was brave. He was confident. He was good-looking. He had come out of the shell he once hid in and was now larger than life. I didn't see myself as any of those things. I was a skinny, freckled-faced fifth grader who only fought with words, never fists, and wasn't nearly as confident as I put on. I know I said earlier that my abilities and success on the baseball field gave me more and more confidence, but that was just on the surface. Deep down, I knew baseball wasn't going to be my ticket out of town. I was pretty good, but not athletic enough. I knew I was intelligent, but no kid genius. And I knew girls thought I was funny, but not necessarily easy on the eyes. Some said I looked like a young Jerry Mathers from Leave it to Beaver. I wasn't like Johnny, which is what girls noticed and wanted. The perfect recipe for envy. See, I felt like a song made up of jumbled notes and phrases. A complete flop when taken all together. But Johnny? He was a billboard hit. <laughs> I was jealous. I never really shared any of this with Johnny, though. I didn't know how to explain my feelings at that age. I was just a little freckled-faced kid, after all. So my big brother and I continued to get along just fine. By the time Johnny began his freshman year at Jefferson High School, he had many the female suitor. At first, he wasn't really sure what to do with this specific and sometimes overwhelming kind of attention. But with each new suitor, he gained more confidence. And with confidence, of course, came courage. Quite the lucky trend. It didn't take Johnny long to learn how to approach girls, strike up an engaging conversation, and impress them enough to solidify a date or two. He liked all kinds of girls, and he did his best to treat them with care and respect. Our mother would make sure of that. But he was obviously a teenage boy, so he didn't stick with any relationship for too long and enjoyed seeing how many interested fish there were out there in the so-called Jefferson Sea. Meanwhile, Chris and I were still on the first step. How do we even approach a girl? What do we say? Why would they like us? We would find inspiration in the lyrics of our favorite musical group, Boys to Men. Real poetic stuff. But inspiration without action leaves much to be desired. So we eventually decided that until we were ready, or until girls made it easy and just approached us instead, watching Johnny and Sean's adventures in girl land might just be our best option. Not to mention, we might also be able to have some fun and pull a prank or two on our brothers and their girlfriends from time to time. <laughs> Boy, that brings back some good memories. Like this one. Oh, I have to tell you this one. Chris and I's best prank of all time. It had to be the one we pulled the summer after Johnny and Sean's freshman year. Johnny earned his driver's license that May and got his first car from Dad. A used Ford Tempo. A chick magnet if ever there was one. The girls didn't mind, though. As long as they had a ride, and as long as they had Johnny, 
They were happy. Chris and I knew our brothers were busy taking girls out that summer. We also knew my dad had developed a habit of periodically checking the car to make sure Johnny was taking care of it. This periodic check included both an inside and outside sweep of the car. Knowledge of this ended up providing my mischievous friend and I with a golden opportunity. As always, this prank began with a little adventure and devious fun. Chris and I made our way down to the local health club that just so happened to be stationed right outside of our neighborhood, like the Randolph Racket Club. I don't know how we kept getting so lucky. Before entering the building, we went over our plan one last time. Remember, said Chris, I'll be the interpreter if needed. You do the talking. Now, you have to keep a straight face. And if they start asking you questions, just keep the answers as short and sweet as possible. Got it? I confidently confirmed. <laughs> no problem, man. I had my mom teach me a few Dutch words from when she spent some time over there as a kid. <laughs> I got this, bro. But once we walked in, I felt my hands clam up and my heart start to pound. I thought about turning around and abandoning this crazy plan altogether, but it was too late. Can I help you boys with something? The nice lady behind the counter had already stood up, slid her glasses down to the tip of her nose, and leveled her stare directly at Chris and I. There was absolutely no mistaking who she was talking to. I considered telling her we were in the wrong place, but before the words could even formulate in my brain, Chris was already taking charge. Um, yeah... Noticing the badge around her neck, he continued, Janice, my friend here needs to ask you something, uh, important. He's an exchange student from Belgium, but his English is pretty good. Chris then turned his entire body toward me. He mouthed the next few words slowly and deliberately. Go ahead, buddy. I got you. And just like that, I was stuck. Now, I'd feel guilty about what happened next for many years to come, but a plan was a plan. I'd been practicing for weeks, and I figured if I could pull something like this off, I might just have the nerve to go up and talk to a girl someday. I stepped up to the counter. Then, putting on my best Dutch accent and using my hands to pantomime parts of the story, I dove right into the deep end. Ja, I, uh, need... No, 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 no. Uh, need... Uh, how to say Dick Tracy Nook? Uh, no, 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 no. Mm, bag. Dick Tracy Bug. Ja. I actually got the words out. I'm sorry, young man. Did you just say Dick Tracy? Asked Janice, surprised. I thought for a moment. Hmm, I, I was sure that's what they were called. Uh, ja, mom. Dick Tracy. Janice leaned in. You mean condoms, right? Ja, ja, uh, how to say condoms, mm-hmm, I replied. Then I gave her all the Dutch I could muster up. Mich kunt u helpen. Eh, war kan ik de sexual intervenen? Holat gat, how you say condoms u dicht? Tot ziens. Dog. No, 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 no. I looked at Janice for her response. She looked less than impressed, but still confused no less. Chris stepped in to interpret. 
I could tell he was thrilled by the progress we were making and that he was the one having a difficult time keeping a straight face. I shot him a stern look between every sentence. Chris began, My friend here says, I have a very nice girlfriend, and we are starting to have sexual intercourse. I was told I can get a free bag of condoms here. I don't want to get her pregnant. I don't think we're ready for that. No, 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 no. I don't think Chris had ever been so proud of himself. As for Janice, she chose her next words very carefully. Well, young man, it is true we provide condoms here in order to promote safe sex and prevent unwanted pregnancies and sexually transmitted diseases. But it is very important you understand that it is still possible to get your girlfriend pregnant and you must use these condoms very carefully. Do you understand what I'm saying? Chris interpreted all of this for me and especially enjoyed delivering the last part of her lecture, taking on the role of a mother chastising her child for foul play. I ignored him. Ja, mom, I understand. Dankeschön. Janice hesitated for a moment. I wondered if she was buying any part of our act or was just trying to decide how and who to report these disgraceful boys to. After what felt like a lifetime, she slid her glasses back up turned around, walked to the back of the office, and returned moments later with an inconspicuous, unmarked, black paper bag. Before handing it over to me, she also grabbed a couple of pamphlets from a small clear rack hanging on the wall and stuffed them inside. She gave me her final warning. You might want to read these too. Directions for the condoms are on the box. Be smart and safe, young man. Chris and I couldn't believe it. It actually worked! I nodded in delight as I finished the act. Ja, mum. Mm-hmm. Have a, uh, how you say, good day. Uh, Bye-bye! Chris and I quickly turned and stumbled through the two large, darkly-tinted window-pane doors back into the world. A world that had no idea what we had just accomplished. As we made our way across the parking lot, we burst into hysterical laughter and tried to reenact the entire Oscar-winning performance. We couldn't wait to tell our older brothers about this one. But then, I had a realization. Um, Chris? What are we going to do with all of these condoms? There's a ton of them in here, man. Chris stopped. He thought about it for a moment. He smiled. Let's put them in Johnny's car. The glove box. I shook my head in disapproval. No way, man. Bad idea. You know my dad looks in there during his inspections. Chris shook his head in satisfaction. Exactly. Now, leading up to this whole charade, Johnny had definitely kept himself busy with girls that summer. He was really enjoying himself. There was one girl, however, that made Johnny a little uneasy. Her name was Bethany, and she was obsessed with Johnny. She would call the house relentlessly. She would mail him love letters. She would even talk other guys, who were obviously stuck in the friend zone, into driving her over to our house just so she could hopefully catch Johnny there. Even if he wasn't there, or wasn't hiding, she seemed to simply enjoy staring at his bedroom window. It was one step removed from a fatal attraction, and Johnny wasn't the only one who took notice. Our mother really did not like where this was heading. 
So when dad did in fact find that sketchy black bag full of condoms and sex pamphlets in Johnny's car a few weeks later, mom really tore into him. Well, of course she's calling you all the time. Of course she's obsessed. What do you expect, Johnny? Maybe if you weren't having sex with her, she would leave you alone. Maybe if you had the decency to actually call her back instead of stringing her along for a booty call. Poor girl. I did not raise you to be like this. This is not godly behavior. You should be ashamed of yourself, Johnny. Johnny went into full-on shock mode. He was stunned, silent, until... Eli, you better get in here right now! He was screaming at the top of his lungs. You tell mom what you did or you're a dead man. Well, this just enraged mom even more. How dare you blame your baby brother for this? He doesn't even talk to girls. But Johnny wasn't going to back down on this one. Eli, I'm serious! Right now! I casually strolled into the living room. Everyone was silent and staring. Even Dad, who had been busy pacing back and forth in the kitchen during the big showdown. I calmly began. It's true, Mom, but it's not what you think. And I proceeded to tell them the whole story. Laughing my way through all the details and doing my best to play all the parts, including Janice's. By the time I was done, even Mom and Dad couldn't keep a straight face. And Johnny couldn't help but feel a certain amount of pride for his little brother. My sense of humor and enthusiasm for life was another reason for Johnny's adoration. Another reason his little bro was one of his heroes. Or so he would tell me. That's the way life is in a small town. Devious adventures like that can become a part of one's reputation. A part of his or her legacy. Chris and I's prank became part of ours. A story we shared at nearly every Thanksgiving dinner or when reliving the good old days seemed all but too necessary. Life in our small town of Jefferson was about as perfect as it could be in those days. But again, no small town is perfect. And life is a rhythm of opposites. Dear friend, The rhythm in Jefferson was about to change a little. Remember, what we're really talking about here is making choices. Every choice has a consequence.